Jimmy and I have been doing a little bit of traveling in the last week. Uh, we were in uh, Seattle and then in Hawaii, and then we were um, speaking at a at a denominational um, conference. So I think I've been spoke ten times in the last eleven days. So it's been a lot. But I bought this shirt in Hawaii, and Jonathan says it looks like bacteria. So uh, this is now. I think he looks like my camel man. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Camel is better than bacteria. So, now you're not going to concentrate, are you? You're just going to be imagining the virus that's growing on me. We're going to be, uh, the title of the sermon today is The Tale of Two Families. And so we're going to be looking, we're starting a new series. It's a really catchy title. It's called First Samuel. And it's the, uh, it's the name of a book in the Bible. And we're just going to be going through the book of First Samuel uh, for a number of weeks. And we really want to be able to jump into this amazing book. I was a high school teacher. Oh, wow. Uh, quite a few years ago now. Uh, yeah, over 28, 29 years ago. Anyways. And I was a shop teacher, but I also taught a Bible course. And the main book that we taught on was 1 Samuel. And so this just has brought back lots of memories. I loved teaching through this. And it's a, the story begins with a, with a family. The husband's name is Elkanah. He has a wife. He has two wives, which is awkward already. But anyways, he has two wives, uh, one that he dearly loves, one not so much, which is e- even more awkward. <laughs> Uh, but the one that he, he very much loves, her name is Hannah, and she's barren. And she's mocked by the other wife for not being able to have children. I have to do this more. Yeah. I just noticed. You're, usually you go back. Now i got to look like this. Um, and so she's mocked by, uh, by, the other, uh, by the other wife. And so she is in deep distress. She goes, cries out to God, goes to the temple... Uh, cries out to God, and the uh, priest at that time, his name was Eli. And Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, never name your children Hophni and Phinehas because they're very bad. And so don't think just because it's a Bible name, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work for you. You do not want to choose either of those names. I know it was high on the list, but don't do that. Uh, they were really bad. They would... Uh, they would take the best of the offerings that were offered to God. They would take them for themselves. They slept with women who were coming to give those offerings. They were just evil in every way. And so finally, uh, two things, two dramatic things happen. The first is as Hannah is talking to Eli, she, he thinks that she's drunk. She's in so much distress and mumbling. And she says, I'm not drunk at all. I'm crying out to God for a child. And he says that God is going to grant your request, which is amazing. He prays a blessing over her. And then something tragic happens. A prophecy comes on to Eli and says that you and your children are going to die. And the lineage that you have of being priests in this house is going to end. And so that uh, Eli's family ends in disgrace. And Hannah, who started in disgrace has now risen to a place where her child becomes a Christ figure 
that uh, oversees or rules all of Israel as a prophet, a priest, and a kind of king. And it's, it's, it's amazing. So uh, what we want to do is jump into this and look at a few things. And it begins by being a little bit complicated. Uh, when we look at how Eli, this, this is the father of Hophni and Phinehas, how does he get described? Well, he's described in at least three ways that sound not bad at all. In chapter 1, we read that he uses his authority to bless Hannah, and, to, uh, and not only does that blessing come to her, it actually becomes a miracle, and she gives birth to a child. So this is a guy who is interesting in blessing others, and he has the authority of God to bring miracles into their lives. That's pretty great. And then when Samuel is born, Hannah gives birth to Samuel. When Samuel's born, she dedicates him, which we'll get to in a minute, to the house of the Lord, and he ends up raising Samuel. He teaches Samuel how to hear God. He teaches Samuel how to minister or serve in the community. He did a really great job. And then in chapter 2, it says that he actually corrected Hophni and Phinehas. He didn't just ignore what they did. He brought a correction to them. Now, they didn't, he didn't, the kids didn't listen to him, but he did do that. He brought a correction. So uh, look at this. You have somebody who empowers people, who disciples them, and even confronts or disciplines them. Uh, this looks like a model parent. It looks like, wow. I mean, if we did those things, if we empowered, uh, discipled, disciplined our children, uh, isn't that what we would all want if you're a parent? You'd want to do those things for your kids. Eli does all of these things. And the Bible says that God scorned him. Uh, look, at the, look at what God says to him in 1 Samuel chapter 2. It says, why do you honor your sons more than me? So you have, th this is a fascinating idea. You have this model parent who's scorned by God. And he does only one thing wrong. He honors his family and children more than he honors God. That's his only critique. And because of that critique, his family loses their blessing, loses their heritage, and is handed over to another family. What's being talked about here is simply this, priorities. That it's possible to be a model parent and do everything that all the books tell you to do and to miss the main point, to be somebody that honors God yourself and instills that in your children. And God goes so far as to say that if you miss that, you've missed everything. And all the other great things that you do are for naught because you miss the main priority, honoring God over all else. And then we see in contrast to this, how Hannah deals with her longing for a son. So Eli has two sons, but he doesn't, uh, he doesn't go far enough in his discipline, and he doesn't honor God over his sons. So he allows them to stay as priests, even though they're violating people and dishonoring God. Hannah is somebody who just wants a son. Now listen to what Hannah says in her longing for a son. You can think, uh, you know, what do you... If you wanted a child, why would you want a child? You know, somebody to, to love and care for and cherish. Listen to her. In her deep anguish, Hannah pr prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. 
So it just sounds like she's going through some motherly thing, you know, just really wanting a child, which I think is partly true. But she says something very interesting. She says, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. So you give me a son, you'll lift my shame. In response, I'll dedicate this child to you all the days of his life, and he'll be raised in the temple courts. I won't even raise him as my own son. I'll give him physically to you in your temple, and someone other than me will raise him and experience the joy of that child. What a shocking thing to do. So Hannah ends up giving birth to what is called a Christ figure, somebody who comes as a savior to Israel, a Messiah. Eli, his, uh, both of his sons die on the same day. He hears the news of it, he, uh, and that the ark has been stolen by the same people who, who killed his, his two boys. He falls over. He's a big dude. Falls over, breaks his neck. He dies. On the same day, uh, I can't remember whether it's Hoffman or Finnis's, uh wife gives birth. Uh, that child dies, and it becomes the fulfillment of a prophecy of the end of a... Uh, of a priestly line. Incredible. Now, Jesus confronted the Pharisees for acting in a similar way to Eli back in the Old Testament. This is what he says in the New Testament, written now he's alive, and this is what he says to a group of people. I mean, Jesus is just not a subtle guy. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. How'd you like it if I spoke to you that way? <laughs> clear, clear this up pretty fast. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Now, he's referring to Micah 6, 8, which has been one of my favorite verses for my whole life as, as a Christian. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. If you were to summarize God's priority for your life, it would be to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. That's his, uh, his to-do list for you. Now, here's the point. The Pharisees, Eli, us, they did what was easy to avoid what was necessary. They did what was easy to avoid what was necessary. Or another way to say it is they did what was natural to them to avoid what was necessary. So I need to ask this of you this morning. What is easy or natural for you? What just comes easily to you? It's just kind of what you do. It's the equivalent of, of, of tithing a tenth of these spices or, or uh, Eli giving a blessing, raising up Samuel. What's easy for you? Are you a mother 
who just, you have a, a natural heart to serve. Uh, it just kind of comes out of you without thinking twice. It, if, if there's a need, there's a, a motherly instinct rises up in you, and you just love to serve not only your children, but the people around you. Is that what you're like? Or maybe you're a dad who just has a playful side, and you just love to play with your kids. Maybe that's just what you're like. You're just a playful person, and you have these kids, which is outstanding because you wanted to play anyways. And so now you get to play with the other kids because <laughs> you're kind of a big kid. And uh, you just get to play ball and do whatever it is that you like. Maybe you're, you're that kind of person. I think that's pretty great, isn't it? Having a father who plays with their children, isn't that a great thing to do? A mother who serves, isn't that outstanding? You're maybe a, you're a student who studies hard. Could there be anything wrong with that? You know that you should be responsible, and so uh, when you sign up for school, you put your whole heart into it, and you study uh, diligently. It makes sure that whoever's paying for it, that it's, it's worth it. Are you a Christian who diligently reads your Bible, and you know that that's what Christians do, and so every day, or, or most every day, you, you just read your Bible? Uh, how could that ever be bad, reading your Bible? How could these things ever be bad? Aren't they all good? They become bad when they excuse weightier matters. They become bad when they become an excuse for other things. I think of a more uh, drastic thing. I think of, I've talked to people who, who aren't following Jesus, and I'll listen to them describe their morality. I had a guy one time said to me, he says, you know, uh, he says, I sleep around, but I want you to know, I never sleep with a woman who's the ex of one of my friends. Like, okay, I didn't know who I was dealing with here. <laughs> we got, okay, all right, I, you know, I get you. That's amazing. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's funny to me that uh, there's something inside of all of us that has a sense of morality that we feel obligated to participate in. You know, there's, there's something in all of us where there's this line that we won't cross. Or there's a value that defines us. Uh, I'm the person, I, I come to church early all the time, and I'm just super friendly. I, I like being friendly, and that's what I'm known for, and that's me. I like that. Or I'm always serving with the kids, which is really great. We always need more people serving with the kids. Thank you so much. But what if... There is a group of things that you and I do that is actually an expression of an excuse or an avoidance to do the necessary things, the weightier things that God has called us to do. So I've watched this in families. I've watched uh, uh, families revolve their whole life around their children. How are you going to argue with that? And so you'll invite them to do something that's outside of that, and they'll go, young kids, what are you going to do? 
I got young kids. And then what, that's all designed to go, whoa, sorry, I didn't get that you had young kids. You don't have to do anything else for the next 10, 20 years. That's all good. I understand. I'm so sorry. And so, uh, so this is awkward because there's a morality that we can have that can't be argued with. You should never sleep with your exes, you know, you know with the boyfriend. Like, you should never do that, right? Like, we all know that's wrong. <laughs> and somehow, in our mind, if we can do a bunch of this, that offsets having to do these other things. It's like, kids, kids will do this all the time. You say, clean your room, and they go and tidy up something else. And you go, no, but I said, your room. They go, yeah, but I was just doing this. And so it's like, how can you argue with them? Because it's still a good thing that they're doing. It's just not what you said to do. Parents, come on. <laughs> you know this happens all the time. And there's this look of shock on their face. How could you misunderstand my heart in this moment? I'm a good kid doing a good thing right now. And you're obviously missing it. So I'm quite sobered by this because there's things that I do that I naturally do. I naturally work hard. I just like working. And so how are you ever going to argue with somebody who's working hard? But there's times when I shouldn't be working hard. I shouldn't be doing that. But I've set it up in such a way that it'll be difficult for you to confront that. <laughs> because I'm doing the work of the Lord, don't you know? And so how can, you, how can you argue with that? But what if in that I am missing justice and mercy and following God? What if in that I'm missing the main point it's possible to do? In Jeremiah 17, it says that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? That there's things inside of our heart that we're, we're doing to offset this whole other list of things that uh, God is saying that's closer to his heart and what he's really asking from us. So why would we do this? Why do we do this? Uh, I was talking to Noah the other day, and he was having some insights into things that I just thought fit really well into this sermon. And I think it is, at least this is one reason why. I'm sure that there's lots of reasons why we would do this, where we would adopt our own priorities instead of God's. That's what we're talking about this morning. And that we feel like we're at capacity. When I listen to people describe even why they sin, they describe it this way. I'm doing my best. That's how people will describe it. I don't, I, maybe there's some people out there who wake up in the morning that says, I want to be evil. I mean, maybe there's some people out there who do that. I haven't met them. I mean, they come and go a little bit. I better watch, but uh, <laughs> you know, mostly. 
But they'll say, look, if you knew the stress I was under, you knew the obligations that I have, if you knew that all that was going in my head, if you uh, knew what I talked with my therapist about, you would, you would lighten up on your expectations of me. You would be a lot more reasonable. In fact, I think that you're being mean to me because I'm trying my best and I'm insulted that you would criticize me for trying so hard and you not recognizing that. I don't think that's right. There's a, uh, there's a saying in, in uh, no, it's more of an observation in counseling that says that I, I can't is a thinly disguised I won't. <clears throat> and I can't is a thinly disguised I won't. And I think it's possible for us to live in such a way as to feel justified in our disobedience because we've done a whole bunch of things that are natural to us that feel should offset the things that we aren't doing because we're trying our best. But here's the point of this morning. It's about priorities. It's not about more. God does not ask more from us, but he does ask us to rearrange our priorities. And I think the reason why we often feel maxed out is we're actually doing a bunch of things that our father didn't even ask us to do. He wasn't even thinking about that. He was thinking about another list that was replacing our list. But we'll work with our list, and it's true. After we get through doing all that we think that we should be doing, there probably isn't much capacity left over for God, right? If we did all that we need to do first. And what does Matthew 6, 33 tell us? But seek first his kingdom in his righteousness. The, the plea of scripture is the ordering of priorities, not the addition of more tasks and to do it with a genuine heart. That's not what's going on. And so what I find in my life when I feel like I'm at capacity, and it happens to me often, I am, I am officially overwhelmed. I can't put another thing on my plate. I am hanging on. I'm speaking in tongues, if you do that. I'm praying in tongues. I am, I, I'm st I, I am just, I am hanging on. And I say to God, I can't do any more. I am maxed out. And if you want more, look for somebody else, because I am not your guy. I can't pull it off. And he says, I'll make you a deal. How about uh, trade your burdens for mine? How about instead of doing more, you do something different? You do the thing that I've called you to do. And if you do the thing that I've called you to do, we have a Hannah experience where we put God first, even in our deepest longings for a child. I mean, how much more profound a longing could you have than that? And in that, she puts God's first. I'm going to give him to you. And in that place, a miracle happens. And the things, the other things that we cared for actually happen, but in an entirely different way because God was in charge of that moment instead of us. Plus, when 
our hearts put God first, even what comes easier, natural to us, also gets redeemed. So you do get to serve. You do get to play with your kids. You do get to study hard. You get to do all of those things. But now you're doing them out of a response to God instead of compensating for what you think God isn't doing. So let me ask in closing, uh, what have you been avoiding that you know God wants you to do? What have you been avoiding? What have you been compensating with? You know, I'm, 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 I'm tithing. I don't know if any of you tithe, you know, Dylan Kuman. I don't know if you We haven't noticed that in the offering box. But, uh, you know, but I'm giving, I'm giving something here and I'm volunteering here and I'm not sleeping with so-and-so there. And so, you know, I'm, I'm compensating. But it's exhausting. It's exhausting to compensate. I, I've, I've sa- I think I've said this before. But I remember, uh, I remember uh, my, my brother telling this story of a, of a family that I really respect. And uh, he, says to the, he says to the dad, uh, what's the secret of having such great kids? And I'm waiting for an Eli list. Uses his authority to bless. Disciples his son to hear God and to serve others. Confront sin. Doesn't overlook it. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for an Eli list. And he responds to my brother by saying, I think we're blessed by God. And we come from a history of families who have sacrificed to love Jesus. I think we're just blessed. I think it's the best description that I've ever heard. Uh, Because I I think about the complexity of parenting. And I think of the number of books that are written these days on parenting. And you would think, with the amount of research that's done, we should have in our school system right now rock star kids. You would think that, wouldn't you? I mean, we know way more about parenting now than we did even 30 years ago. Forget 500 years ago. But I think that there's one thing that matters. Will you honor God? Now, that's not to be in contrast with playing with your kids and serving them. It's not in contrast with it. But it is about rearranging our priorities. And so when I think about our 11 kids... I get overwhelmed saying the number. It, uh, I'm praying for the blessing of God. I'm not praying to become more clever. I don't think I'm that clever. I don't think I'm that good of a parent. I just don't think I am. Especially that many, because the books, I got to spend a certain number of hours each week with each one. And I mean, I, <laughs> somebody asked the birthday of one of my kids. I had to look it up on my phone. I don't remember their birthdays. Any of our children, I don't have a clue what their birthdays are. <laughs> Isn't that sad? There's so many. It's just, uh, and I'm numerically challenged. And so, so have I just scarred my children? You know, is that what's happened? I am, uh, I am trying to love Jesus Christ with all my heart, soul, and strength. And I'm trying to do every day what he tells me to do. And then I ask, Father, 
as I dedicate my life to you, you know the longings of my heart as you knew Hannah's. You know the longings of my heart. You know what I'm, I'm desperately crying out for, mostly for my kids. You know that. And so I'll make you a deal. I'll devote myself to you. I can't control what you're going to do. And I can't control what my kids are going to do either, just to be clear. It's not like this is some guarantee. But the thing that my father calls me to do is to prioritize my devotion to him first, trusting that he'll oversee the things that I care about. So what have you been avoiding? What have you been avoiding? What does prioritizing God look like in your life? What have you been offsetting that with? Today is a day for clarity. Today is a day that, that you would no longer put off the thing that God's calling you to do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the story of Eli and Hannah. And I think of Eli and... Uh, I think a lot like him. And I think that he felt like he was at capacity, that he even confronted his kids and he just threw up his hands and said, what can I do? What can I do? But Father, you're not asking more from us. You are asking us to rearrange our priorities. And so I pray that we would not scorn your name, that we would not put you at the bottom of our lists that you would have your rightful place in our hearts, you would have your rightful place in our behavior, in that we would trust you as Hannah did to give us the longings of our hearts, but that our concern is to put you first. Give us the grace to respond to you in this way today. Thank you, Jesus.